And now for something completely different. Ah! Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal, the full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And good morning and welcome to the show. Of course, it is Tuesday and... Uh, Got a lot of things going on on the website today. We'll get into a new blog post out this morning uh, talking about forecast for 2024, right? So everybody's now doing their year-end predictions for 2024. So we'll talk about some of those this morning. Um, but again, fairly light week so far in terms of economic data. Factory orders came in a good bit weaker yesterday, still showing kind of some disappointment in the economy. So if you take a look at the Economic Surprise Index, that's an index that tracks um, you know, whether or not uh, econo you know, economists were surprised to the upside or the downside when the data comes out. So uh, that, that index has been declining, suggesting that the data has been coming in a lot weaker than economic estimates so far. So again, you know, there's a lot of, of, of you know, sentiment uh, about next year that the economy is going to be very strong, et cetera. But we're starting to see some weaker economic data come in. Now, this is coming off the heels of quarter three, which had that 5.2% growth rate in the economy. Uh, quarter four, not shaping up to be nearly that strong. Right now, uh, according to the Atlanta Fed, that's running around 1.2% growth. So we're starting to certainly see that beginning of that slowdown in the economic activity. And again, not surprising here, but there's been so much stimulus and so much money in the markets that's kept economic activity elevated. People had a lot of money in savings. That's beginning to run out. Um, very interesting article out this morning talking about buy now, these buy now, pay later schemes, which are these companies that you can go to, you can borrow money, you make payments over four, six, or 12 months, and there's generally no interest on them until you don't make your payment. <laughs> and then things get pretty nasty pretty quickly. Um, seen a huge surge in the use of those buy now, pay later schemes uh, here over the last couple of months in particular, people starting to shop for the holidays, et cetera, looking for other sources of income. So, you know, basically what that's saying is they've kind of tapped out the credit cards. And as we talked about before, consumers are always very creative about taking on additional leverage, finding some additional money here or there. Well, they're running out of credit cards. And so now they're turning to these buy now, pay later schemes uh, in order to fund that buying as we go forward. So, so again, you know, this is why economic data always, it's like, man, how do, how do people keep coming up with the money? They find it. And consumers are very creative, not to their best interest, of course, but they're very creative in about finding money. But that's keeping some of this economic data, uh, at least at the surface, um, more elevated than probably it should be. And, and here's the interesting thing right now, if you take a look at gross domestic product, that's been doing very well, right? Gross domestic income, which is the income generated, has not. In fact, we have a record divergence right now between GDI and GDP, suggesting that the underneath, you know, underneath the surface, the economy is not nearly as strong as what the economic data says. So either gross domestic income is going to have a rapid catch up to GDP, which is not usually the case, or GDP is going to catch down to GDI at some point. So next year we see weaker economic growth. Now that's right in line with what the that uh, you know kind of the Federal Reserve wants. They want weaker economic growth. They would like unemployment to come up a bit. But the problem with weaker economic growth is, well, estimates for $220 a share in earnings next year is going to be really hard to get to. 
right? Weaker economic growth suggests that there's weaker buying. If there's weaker activity in the economy, that means less revenues. If there's less revenues, that means lower profits for these companies. So again, that's going to be kind of thing. Now, today we've got the ISM non-manufacturing index coming out this morning. That, as we talked a little bit about yesterday, that's 80% of the economy. So what we take a look at in terms of those services indexes, that's been an expansion, uh, and not, not by much, right? But it's been an expansionary territory. Are we starting to see some weakness on the service side of the sector? That's going to be one of the, the interesting things today to pay attention to. That should also, if that number comes in weaker than expected, that could potentially weigh a bit on the kind of the outlook for higher inflation or higher Fed, you know, the, potentially the Fed hiking rates, et cetera, because that's going to feed right into the rest of the economy. Those services are very important now because they make up such a big chunk of the economy overall versus manufacturing. So, all right, um, having said all that, here's what you need to know before the bell this morning. Markets did sell off just a little bit yesterday. We were down about 30, 40 bips yesterday at the close. Came off the lows, though. Uh, despite the fact that the markets ended down for the day, there was, there was a couple of bouts of buying during the day. So as the market would kind of sell off in the morning, in the afternoon, we had the markets kind of rally back a bit. Then they kind of sold off a little bit. Then into the close, there was buying. And that, what that's showing is that there's still people buying into the dips of this market. So as the market tends to tries to sell off here a bit, you kind of keep having these buyers step in. That's, and again, that's not surprising you know, we've got a lot of this rebalancing going on for mutual funds. Uh, one thing that's really been lagging here is the MAG-7, as we've talked about, Apple, Microsoft, Google, NVIDIA. Those have been under a lot of pressure here over the last couple of days. And that makes sense, right? Don't read too much into it. I've seen a lot of headlines that right now is like, oh, it's now time for the small caps to come roaring back and they're going to take over the lead and all this. Be real careful with that. We're just in two weeks of the year where mutual funds are having to look at their portfolios going, well, the Magnificent Seven, which was up like 70% this year, <laughs> you know, those weights in my portfolio are too overweighted. So I've got to sell those guys and I've got to buy the other stuff in my portfolio that's now underweight because they've been underperforming all year. So that's making it look like right now there's this big rotation in the market. It's probably not. It's probably just a lot of year-end portfolio rebalancing and, and window dressing going on right now as, as they're making their distributions, they're having to sell stuff to make those distributions, they have to rebalance the portfolio. So that's all that's going on here. This isn't some big you know, shift you know, in the overall market dynamics. Very likely, as soon as we get through this, last couple, this next couple of weeks, we're going to go right back to where we were before because mutual funds, pension funds, hedge funds, et cetera, tend to chase all the same stocks and they tend to go with what was working previously and again they're buying and they're paying up for re revenue and earnings growth which are in those big companies so again don't read too much into this rotation that we're seeing in the markets right now it's probably going to be fairly short-lived we'll see important thing though is that that little sell-off yesterday got us very close to a sell signal on our macd now we're not there yet but the markets are looking to open down this morning uh, markets are yeah, about 18 points at the open on the s p so if the market ends lower today, we're likely going to trigger that sell signal. And again, that kind of gives us a couple of targets to go to on some type of short-term correction that we've been talking about here. Uh, for, for, uh, 44.80 is the 20-day moving average right now. So again, that's not too far below where we are right now. We closed yesterday at 45.60. So a, a pull down to 44.80. Below that is 43.50. So again, a little bit bigger correction there. You get back down to 43.50-ish. That's the 50-day moving average. Good level of support right there. Um, and probably that's where the market's going to hold 
uh, at this point going into the end of the year. And again, as we talked about before, you know, we're just set up here. Our money flow indicator has already triggered an early sell signal that kind of aligned with this kind of pullback yesterday. And then, of course, if we get this MACD sell signal today, then that is going to suggest, at least in the near term, that markets are going to have more trouble going up versus going down. Now, that doesn't mean the markets are going to crash, so don't over don't overreact to this. But you know, all this suggests is, is that, that buying pressure is becoming less and your selling pressure is increasing. And that's going to kind of all coincide with some type of short-term correction here. And again, doesn't mean anything. But again, if you haven't taken the time right now to do some tax loss selling for the end of the year to, to rebalance your portfolio, do it now. Uh, this is a really good time. You need to do it before year end anyway. If you need to sell some stuff to do your RMDs, your required minimum distributions, great time to be doing that right now. Take advantage of this rally, sell some stuff here, go ahead and raise the cash that you need for those distributions. Um, but that's what you need to know before the bell this morning. When we'll come back, we'll talk about a range of outcomes for next year um, and how we, to how we kind of arrive at those estimates. So we'll talk about that right after the break, right here on The Real Investment Show. I'm your host, Lance Roberts. Don't go away. Get, get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. Welcome back to the show this morning. So we're going to talk a little bit this morning about um, kind of Wall Street analyst estimates for next year and um, kind of a range of outcomes. But before we get to that, I need to kind of give you some background um, on why analysts are always bullish. Right. So when you're listening to the media, when you're listening to Wall Street analysts, etc., they are always bullish. And, and there's a couple of reasons for that. And, and the first is, is that it's easier to be bullish than bearish. Why? Because you're going to be right more often than you're wrong. 85% of the time, the market is rising. About 15% of the time, the market's actually declining, right? So you're having a bear market about 15% of the time. You're having a, a bull market about 85% of the time. And when Brent stops messing around with whatever he's doing and he puts the chart up so you can see it, we can certainly talk about this in more detail. <laughs> Trying to give you some cues over here. <laughs> so anyway, uh, so on this chart, this is a long-term chart of the S&P going back to, to 1900. And you know, the, the black lines are where the markets are making new highs, right? So if you think about, you know, the, you, you know you'll hear this statement all the time. It's like, well, if you just invested in the markets in 1900, you would have made 8% a year, blah, blah, blah. Well, that's true on average, but markets don't compound. In fact, what you will notice here is that about <laughs> there are very long periods between where markets make highs and where they make the next set of highs. In other words, they spend a lot of time just recovering previous losses. And that's a, that's, that's a, a huge difference than making money when you're just recovering losses. So What's always important about investing is when you start investing, not if you start investing. But it's important, though, that, that you know, yes, the markets are going up a vast majority of the time. And that's why bullish, you know, analysts are always bullish. It's, it's just easier to say, hey, next year the markets are going to be up because the odds of being wrong 
are really in your favor, right? I mean, you know, you know, 85% of the time, the market's going to be bullish. So if I'm bullish, the market's going to be bullish. And I can say, hey, see, I was right. Market was up last year. It doesn't, it doesn't necessarily mean anything. It's just that's why that's the case. But it's important to also understand that it's just a really big business for Wall Street. Now, we've talked about this, you know, before, and it's important. But, you know, back in the 60s, 70s, even the early 80s, right, um, guys on Wall Street, you know, brokers, we called them stockbrokers back then. They weren't financial advisors. This has been a new marketing twist term. But back in the day, you were a stockbroker, right? And, and your job every day was to, you know, call a client, sell a stock, and make a commission. And that was actually a much better way of doing things because you as the, as the buyer, you'd pay a one-time commission to own a stock. You'd sell it for a one-time commission. And it, that, that's really a much better deal than the, the structure we have today where everybody pays a fee, right? And you just, you, you buy an ETF and you have this fee that you pay every year, um, which is much, much more expensive in the long term, but it's great for Wall Street because they annuitized all their businesses, right? Um, we invented mutual funds first. And this was like, oh, look, instead of you just buying all these stocks, buying and selling, you just put them into this fund. We're going to charge you an annual fee and we'll do all the buying and selling for you, right? You just buy and hold. And this was great for Wall Street because all of a sudden they didn't have to sell new stuff every day to make revenue. They had to come in. They actually just had to accumulate assets tell you to just buy and hold. It was great. And they just collect an annual fee. So now they annuitize a revenue stream. And this has been great business for Wall Street. It's it, for the top 24 firms. I went and ran a calculation on the, the top 24 firms uh, in the investment, kind of the investment banking asset management side. It's almost a trillion dollars a year in revenue, right? That's just 24 firms out of all the financial firms that are out there. But it's huge business, mutual fund business, pension funds, hedge funds, you know, but anything I can get you to invest in where you just pay an annual fee is great, right? It's not really that great for you. Commission was way better. Pay $25 to buy something, pay $25 to sell something. But people held these things for an average of six years, right? So your, your actual expense was very low back then. And now you're paying a fee every year to own these ETFs or whatever is in. And the message from Wall Street is just buy and hold. Why? Because, well, markets go up most of the time. Most of the time. But this is kind of an interesting thing now because, again, it's important as we start looking at the markets themselves. So, so again, this is, you know, who's the real client here? And we're going to get into this in a second, right? Who's the real client? But have you ever wondered why every stock is rated a buy or a hold? Right. And nobody's, you know, there's there's very few stocks out there ranked to sell. Have you ever wondered why? I, I went and ran, uh, so we I went to Zach's research, and I pulled down a list of every stock that they cover in their universe, which is over 5,000 stocks. It's 5,170 stocks that they cover in their research. I pulled it down, and then I ranked them by which stocks were rated a buy, a sell, or a hold. Right? Now, this is not Zach's ratings. They have their own rating system for stocks. Um, which is much better. But this is the average Wall Street analyst rating on these stocks. Out of 5,170 stocks, 4,335 were rated buy or strong buy. Now, do you mean to tell me that you honestly think that 4,335 stocks out of 5,170 issues, and then you can throw the other hold issues in there as well because that's just a polite way of not saying sell. Um, 
you know, so 4,800 to 5,170 rated either a buy or a hold. Why is that? Why is that? So why are these ratings that you use to buy or sell stocks like, oh, it's a buy rated stock. I need to buy it. Why are they all rated buys? Well, this is where it comes down to really understanding where you rank in terms of Wall Street, right? And it's also a function of why you need independent advice and, and, and you know, analysis that is independent of, of how Wall Street works. But they went, so the Wall Street Journal went and they did a, a survey and they surveyed all the Wall Street, you know, analysts out there. And they asked them a question. They said, how important are the following to your compensation? In other words, how you get paid. And so, they, you know, your industry knowledge was number one. You're standing in the analyst rankings and the broker votes, right? So they all vote for each other who is the best. Uh, your professional integrity, your accessibility and, respons and responsiveness, your relationship with management of the companies you follow, your success at generating underwriting business or trading commissions, your written reports, number eight, number nine, the profitability of your stock recommendations was at the bottom of the list. It didn't really matter whether or not their recommendations made any, any in, were, were right or wrong. Or if their accuracy and timeliness of those forecasts were right or wrong, those were at the bottom of the list. What was important is how they were ranked among the other brokers and analysts out there. You know, were they were they more popular than the other guys? And did they generate any business for the firm? That's what was important. Now, let's go to the next one. So question number two. Question number two was, how important are the following clients to your employer? Number one was hedge funds, to, followed by mutual funds, defined benefit pension plans, insurance firms, endowments and foundations, high net worth individuals, and at the very bottom of the list, retail brokerage clients. Now, when you start taking a look at all these ratings that are you're told, you're saying, hey, you just need to buy and hold this ETF. You just need to buy and hold this. You know who doesn't buy and hold? Pension funds, hedge funds, mutual funds, insurance companies, major investors. Warren Buffett doesn't buy and hold. He may hold something for a very long period of time, but he sells stuff. But you're just told to buy and hold this. Why? Because you're the person they're selling all this stuff to. You know, have you ever wondered about an IPO? You know, IPO, so it's like, hey, this company's going IPO, so you want to run out there and buy it. Why? Why would you want to buy an IPO? That's like me having a steak at, you know, at, at my restaurant, right? And it's the last steak that's there, and I can sell it to you for any price I want, right? I'm, I can sell it to you for a massive premium. And this is the, this is the way that, that IPOs work. The mutual funds, the hedge funds, the defined benefit pension plans, the insurance firms, those are the guys that invested in those companies when they were private. Goldman Sachs was going to bring this company public, and they went around and they did a roadshow with these hedge funds, these mutual funds. Hey, you know, you're going to buy into Uber, right? And then we're going to take it public. And when we go public, you sell all your shares. The insiders of these firms are the ones, that, and, and the brokerage firms, right? Goldman and J.P. Morgan, those, this is why they do IPOs. It's huge business. It's huge revenue business for them. But who do they sell the shares to? You! They're going, you should buy these shares of this IPO. It's awesome. This is a great company, IPO, right? We're taking it public. And so all the people that bought into it when it was private are selling their shares to you at a huge premium. 
So you have to understand where you fit on the list. So when you listen to these Wall Street recommendations, you have to understand where you are on this list. Wall Street doesn't care about you. They need Wall Street needs you. Wall Street needs you to sell product too. That's what Wall Street does. Wall Street is a product generator. They generate products to sell to you. That's why, you know, during 2020, 2021, when we had all that influx of capital, what do we have going on? Massive rush of IPOs. And we couldn't get IPOs out the door fast enough because there was so much demand because all these people had had insurance money or sorry, uh, government stimulus money. They came up with SPACs, right? It's like, oh, we can get SPACs out faster than we can get an IPO. So let's just SPAC these companies out. We don't even know what we're going to invest in. We'll just do a SPAC. People will give us the money. We'll have it. And then we'll just go try to find something to buy. But that was because of the demand. And so, again, when there's a demand for product that will generate revenue, Wall Street will feed it to you. It doesn't matter if it's a good product. It just matters that they fill that need for you. Now, understanding that, when we come back from the break, we're going to talk about Wall Street estimates for 2024, where they think the market's going, and we'll kind of review the last couple of years to see how well they did. Don't go away. Investment Advice blog. It's required reading for the informed investor. Catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com. So, understanding now, as we talked about last segment, that Wall Street's not really in this game for your benefit. It's always interesting. I love like the slogans of of these big Wall Street firms like UBS. It's you and us. <laughs> it's it's them and them. It's it has nothing to do with you. They just want to sell you stuff. So just again, just kind of keep this in mind. But this is why analysts are always bullish, right? Because if I came out and said, "Hey, you know what? Next year, markets going to be down twenty percent." That's you know, your first response is, okay, well, if, if you're saying the market's going to be down next year, I'll just go to cash and I'll just wait it out, right? Problem with that is, is they don't make any money. They can't sell you anything by being bearish. That's why they're always bullish. And, and this is because bullish sells product. And that's that's all this is. And, and the reason that you want to be bullish is because I can sell you stuff. You know, so if we go back to uh, 2021 as an example, in December of 2021, Goldman Sachs came out and said that the S&P would climb 9% to 5,122. Um, 2022 turned out to be a year where the market was down 18, over 18% after including dividends. So clearly a big gap between what Goldman said was going to happen and what actually happened. But that's okay, right? So they, they, they obviously... 
got it right the following year because you know 2023 was a, a good year right i mean we're almost at, at five you know we we're 4800 ish here just recently so i mean obviously 2023 they got they they certainly nailed that one right so uh, if we take a look at the Wall Street targets for 2023, this was a, a list of the uh, 10 companies in, on the 19th of December of 2022. Barclays Bank was estimating 36.75. Where was Goldman? Goldman said 4,000 on the index for 2023. Problem with that is, of course, is that what they assumed and what actually occurred two very different things so you know these forward analysts uh, you know these forward estimates are you know very wrong and you know the problem is is that you know had you been investing based on these forward estimates well it didn't really work out that well for you so what are you saying about 2023 well here's the latest um so far this is now these these are going to change Right. This is early. So we're going to get some more out here towards the end of the end of the year. And the closer we get to, you know, the market high for the year, these will all get ratcheted up for next year. But Deutsche Bank at fifty one hundred Goldman's at forty seven hundred Goldman's saying, hey, you know what? We're going to be lower next year than we are right now. Right. So. Will they finally be right? I mean, you know, eventually they're going to be right, right? Well, they're hardly ever right on these estimates. And again, this is this is generally the case with things and certainly something to consider. So here's here's the important thing. Throw all this stuff out the window. It's not important. Right? We go through these these this annual ritual of everybody kind of our 2024 outlook is the economy's going to do this and the market's going to do this. Nobody knows. What we do know and what we can work with is that we can work with valuations and we can make some assumptions on valuations based on the things that we think could happen and then we can develop a range of outcomes that we can invest with and that's kind of the exercise in today's article so if you take a look at forward earnings estimates right now for the s p they were at 227 227 dollars a share that was the initial estimate for 2024 those have already fallen to 220 dollars a share so already down seven dollars on Ford estimates, but we'll use the 220. Now, just understand that between now and this time next year, when we get to the end of 2024, that number will be lower. But let's just use 220 as, as a basis for our exercise today, and let's do some valuation modeling based on some different things. So the first thing is, is let's assume no recession next year. And we assume that, well, if there's no recession next year, we could probably maintain the same valuations this year, you know, at 22 times earnings. And at 22 times earnings, based on $220 a share, that gives us a target of $4,845 for the market next year. Now, we're already at, at basically $4,600-ish, right, from $4,500, $4,600. So it's not that much of an upside to maintain 22 times earnings. And again, that's assuming... That's assuming that we stay at $220 a share at 22 times earnings versus a lower, you know, uh, earnings per share growth. So if we get down to 210, right, 200, it's going to change this number. But we have a range, right? We have an, we have an upper end of our range now of, of a market with no recession at 22 times earnings. Now, you could, 
you know, you could can pick other valuation measures. Just, you know, again, this is just a, a mental exercise for you, you to go through. And you can do this at home yourself. Just pick some ranges and say, okay, at, if we do $220 a share and I think valuations will be this next year, they'll give you a target. But let's assume that we have a soft landing recession, right? So this has been one of the theoretical outcomes for next year is that higher interest rates, lower economic growth, we kind of get this mildish recession. It's not a financial crisis type recession. It's just a normal kind of a normal run-of-the-mill recession. Valuations in theory should fall uh, to about 17 times earnings. That's not a big drop from where we are currently. We're at 18 now, so you go to 17. At two hundred twenty times, uh, two hundred twenty dollars a share at seventeen times earnings, that gives you a target of thirty-seven forty-four. So obviously, some downside risk. That's about seventeen percent decline next year. So there's certainly a setup here for a recessionary outcome of the markets. And if we take a look at normal recession links and and take a look at recessions historically and the average drawdown. 17% is well within the, the, the context of a recessionary drawdown over time. So, you know, again, you know, the average recessionary drawdown is 33%. So 17% just, you know, it's kind of a mildish, soft landing-ish recession. It's not terrible. Nothing falls out of bed. So certainly within the realm of normality. Um, but let's assume that we have a year like this year. We also need a bullish scenario, right? We need a, we need a scenario that... We have a multiple expansion. So in other words, we have $220 a share, but people are willing to pay up for that. And so in that environment, we're looking at a, a very different outcome, which is a, an environment where we have valuations expand to 24, over 24 times earnings. Now, that'd be up from 20, 24 earning, times earnings, you know, where we are currently. But that's that multiple expansion. And that's very similar to what we've had this year. So 2023 was a year where the vast majority of the gains this year came from multiple expansion rather than earnings growth. So this is a good viable target. Now, if, if you have 24 times earnings at $220 a share, that gives you a target of $5,395. So basically call it $5,400 next year. So now we have a range of outcomes. So we've got, we've got a recession outcome. We've got a kind of a just a, uh, a normalcy outcome. And then we've got this really bullish kind of outcome. And so if we put those onto a chart, we can kind of develop a range of outcomes for next year that run the gamut from, you know, a, 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 a decline back to testing kind of those October-ish lows or retest of those lows. And that's certainly well within, well within the realm of, of reality of how markets work. So, you know, again, kind of this retest of previous lows would not be surprising at all in a, in a mild recession-type outcome. If you have just kind of a, a no recession kind of normalcy outcome, and by the way, we did this analysis last year, and the target last year was 4,650, exactly where we're trading now on this kind of normal outcome. So again, the market's exactly where we this this exercise that we did last year predicted the markets would be this year. So again, on that kind of a normalcy, no recession outcome, you're talking, you know, basically kind of, you know, just barely testing new highs for the markets. And then, of course, you have your more bullish optimistic outcome at 220 times 24 times earnings, you know, getting us close to, to, to 5,000. So that's a range of outcomes. And that's a pretty broad range. Now, you, what you'll notice, though, is, is that the upside is much less than the downside. Your risk-reward basis next year is not great.
And that's because of the economic environment and because of assumptions. And again, now, this is all just now, nobody knows what's going to happen next year. I don't know. Nobody knows. And this is why when we talk about this, you know, making assumptions and, and forward, you know, kind of forward forecasts, those type of things, nobody knows what next year is going to hold. But by developing a range of outcomes, we at least have some some probabilities and possibilities that we can work within in terms of managing portfolios and establishing some some guidance of where things are going to be. Now, you know, there's a chunk of you out there right now going, I think the market's going down 17 percent, and that's okay, Right. And then there's a chunk of you out there that are going, "Ah, I think the markets are, you know, going to 5400. And then there's another chunk of you that says, yeah, you know, it's probably where we are right now. We just have a flat year next year. Yeah, those, those are all possible outcomes. The problem is, is don't get wed to any one of them. No, we don't know where they're going to be next year. We have a range of outcomes, so we know what our risk and our reward is, right? And so we can manage portfolios for that range of risk and rewards, but we have no idea how next year is going to turn out. All right. Quick break. We'll come back, get ready to wrap up the show. You're listening to the Real Investment Show right here. That article on the website right now, if you want to go look at all the charts and the graphs, the analysis, it's, it's on the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. If you're subscribed to our newsletter, you'll get this by email as well today. So uh, if you haven't subscribed to our newsletter, do that at the website, our daily market commentary. And be sure, if you're watching the show, please like and subscribe to the show. We appreciate it very much. We'll be right back after the break. Don't go away. daily investment news you can use delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com you know there's a few things in life where you go no duh one of those is uh there's a trend running on tiktok right now where People are going, you know, talking about the cost of food and things like, hey, I went to Target the other day as an example and had a basket full of stuff that was going to cost me $345. Uh, so I went to self-checkout and it was $38.70. And, you know, the, 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 this, is, this is a problem that's arising for, you know, retailers and, and grocers in particular is this whole self-checkout deal. Because theft is on the rise. Theft has doubled for groceries now look uh, first of all uh, we never we don't have a lot of really good data on store theft because it's it's very closely guarded data they don't want it to get out because they're afraid that if it gets out that it'll spur more theft right if if, if people really knew how much theft occurs at a store then it would it would spur more people it was like oh everybody else is doing it i'll do it too right but, you know, they, they did a survey of Gen Zers and they found out that roughly one that 30, that roughly 33 percent, one in three young shoppers has admitted to giving themselves five finger discounts at self-checkout counters. And this is according to a new survey from LendingTree. And it's not surprising. It's kind of like, you know, one for me, one for you, one for me, one for you, <laughs> one, two for me, one for you. And, and again, you know, look, high prices of food, inflation, right? Yeah, I, I get it. 
right? I, I'm not, I don't condone it, right? I'm, I'm not condoning that you know people are doing this, but I get it, right? You you've only got so much money to to spend, and you've got to buy groceries for your family. Then you know it it gets tempting to you know just kind of sort of swipe the bag of kitty litter, and it doesn't quite ring up, right? And just kind of goes in your bag, or you just kind of forget to you know ring up the bottle, you know the the twenty four pack of water, you know at the bottom of the grocery cart. You know those things happen, right? It's totally totally accidental, just happens. Maybe. But so, you know, so right now these grocers are trying to figure out, you know, what to do with these kiosks. Right. So. So. And, and this is the problem, though. And this is the problem with theft. Theft actually creates more inflation. Because if I have theft occurring at my store, my theft increases, I've got to raise the prices on my other products and goods and, and, and products and goods that I'm selling to offset my losses. So the more that people steal, the more that that people have to raise prices and other stuff to compensate for those losses. Now, some of those losses just get written off on taxes, those type of things. There's, you know, there's there's loss provisions and accounting statements, et cetera. But, you know, ultimately it's it's becoming more and more problematic. And of course, laws are, are certainly, you know, the the political climate that we have currently and you know states like you know illinois that are basically decriminalizing things like theft and you know petty theft theft robberies those type of things are decriminalizing that activity um is certainly encouraging this right if there's no penalty for stealing then why not why don't we just have a big free-for-all and everybody just goes to the store and takes what they want if there's no you know if there's no criminal penalty for stealing then why shouldn't i so it certainly doesn't, you know, the the political climate, um, the legal climate, certainly doesn't deter young people from taking some five finger discounts at the grocery store, trying to save a little bit of money, especially in this environment where things are tight. As we talked about, you know, the, the first segment of the show, that you know, the 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 use of these buy now pay later schemes are rising dramatically right now why because people are running out of credit cards they've they've maxed out their credit card they have no savings left in in the the you know the the bank account and so now they're having to do other means of raising capital to make ends meet although some respond i'm just reaching you from this although some respondents to the poll said they regretted having sticky fingers 44 percent plan to continue stealing from self-checkout kiosk while 37 percent said they would do so to save money on groceries or health care goods according to surveys of those who had stolen at kiosk only a third said they had ever been caught according to the data Retailers, as I said, are generally reluctant to release the data. Um, so we'll see what happens. You know, the, these self-checkout kiosks were a great boon to stores like Walmart and Target and Kroger's, et cetera. You know, go, go to the store, check out your own groceries because they could get rid of the humans, right? We didn't need human checkout people, which reduced labor cost. But now some of these stores are going, you know what, it's not worth it. Right. I'll just get rid of the kiosk and I'll just add one more person back. And now when you go to shop, your checkout line is going to be an hour long. Right. They're not going to add, you know, you, when you go into, you know, it's always interesting. You go into like a Kroger and there's like 15 or 20 checkout lines and there's like one of them that's open. 
That's not going to change. That's you're not going to go back. It's not going to go back to the days when you walked in and all 15 checkout lines were open, and you could just move people through, check everybody out. That th- those days are over. The question will be whether or not they can figure out a way to make these self checkout lines, you know, more secure. Which I don't get. It seems pretty easy. You you just put an RFID device on all of your products, and so you just walk by a scanner, and it scans the RFIDs, and it just checks everything out, right? But who knows? Somebody will come up with. Somebody's going to come. Either somebody will come up with a solution, or the self checkout thing will go away, and you're just your shopping is going to get a lot longer at the grocery store. Walmart removed self-checkout stations at some of its stores in New Mexico earlier this year after employees reported a rise in self-checkout thefts. Insider reported. Similarly, Wegman scrapped its scan-as-you-shop self-checkout system last year because of excessive theft. Uh, Meanwhile, Costco has said it plans to station more of its employees at self-checkout after acknowledging this year that it had suffered losses in part due to the rollout of the self-checkout scenarios so we'll, we'll see how this turns out but again it's uh it's a, it's it's a sign of the times look if you know if and if we didn't have as much inflation as we have right now and, and this is very interesting right because i get you know i get a lot of pushback we talk about inflation coming down and how the how the the fed you know it's is you know fighting inflation like well you know the cost of eggs haven't come down or the cost of milk whatever and they're not going to the cost of groceries are not going down, right? The Fed doesn't want the cost of groceries to go down. They want inflation at 2%. And what people don't understand about inflation is, is that, yes, inflation is falling, and this is where I get pushback. It's like, hey, inflation's coming down. We, you know, if we should be at the Fed's target next year. It's like, well, the cost, of, the cost of groceries aren't coming down. They're not going to. And the Fed doesn't want them to. But the way we measure inflation is that if a, a you know a carton of eggs was you know eight dollars in January and it's eight dollars this January, there's no inflation. It doesn't matter that eggs were six dollars a dozen in 2021, whatever the number was. The Fed doesn't want inflation to go down. They don't want the cost of eggs to go from eight to six. That's deflation, right? That's that's severe recession. They don't want that. What they want is, is they want the cost of eggs to go from, you know, $8 up 2% next year. That's what the Fed wants. They, they want a 2% increase in the cost of goods and services from year to year. They don't want deflation. Deflation is recessionary. Deflation is is a problem because deflation is psychological. When prices start coming down, people stop buying stuff going, hey, I think it's going to get cheaper, so I'll wait. Deflation is a very hard thing to fix because that's a psychological thing. So, again, this is not what the Fed wants. And so there's this, this, this big you know, kind of misassumption mis- that the Fed wants lower prices, and, and lower prices is not what the Fed wants. And we're not going to have lower prices. You're not going to see a deflationary trend in prices and goods and services. But nonetheless, the high, you know, the the impact of modern monetary theory, this whole idea that we could just shove trillions of dollars into the economy and it was all going to be fine, led to a massive spike in inflation that's permanently raised the cost of goods and services. 
Those aren't going backwards. People we used to paying for the goods and services, and that number will become sticky. That will become the new baseline. That's why gasoline, when we had negative oil prices, right? Gas never, didn't go back to the 70 cents a gallon that we paid back in the 70s, right? Just that's not, we're never going to see that again. We're never going to see a quarter for a gallon of gas because prices are sticky. But, you know, this is, you know, so, so again, I, hey, I get, I get the five finger discounts. I'm not condoning it, but I get it, right? If you're having trouble making ends meet, it's very tempting to, Skip a couple items while you're while you're self checking out, but that's not going to get better. So, we'll see we'll see what happens. But you know, it is interesting. I've wondered how long this self checkout thing was going to exist because the the ease of which to not scan sufficiently all of your items, this kind of trend on TikTok of how to save money <laughs> by using self checkout you know, is a problem for companies. And, you know, we're seeing stores, you know, close and, and California is an example and other areas where, you know, uh, they don't prosecute shoplifting below $950. We're just seeing stores just leave, right? It's creating deserts of, of retailers in certain areas and certain communities. Theft's a problem. We just don't have any good solutions for it because we're not willing to prosecute for it. But uh, other than that, it's a different story. Okay, that wraps up the show for the day. Uh, get by the website. The new article is out on the website now, along with our newsletter from this weekend. So check those out. Send us emails if you've got any questions. Always happy to help you. And we'll see you back here tomorrow with Danny Ratliff for the next edition of The Real Investment Show. Have a great day.